Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Friday, February 3rd, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Melissa Topshire with today's top headlines. The U.S. military gains expanded access to Philippine bases. Shell reports its highest profits in 115 years. EU leaders arrive in Kyiv for talks. Representative Elon Omar is kicked off the Foreign Affairs Committee. The Bank of England raises interest rates to a 14-year high. Italy renews its migration pact with Libya. A report finds that a record $3.8 billion in cryptocurrency was stolen in 2022. The U.S. College Board revises its African-American Studies course. Merck's COVID drug is found to potentially cause virus mutations. And Australia says King Charles won't appear on its $5 bill. The U.S. military gains expanded access to Philippine bases. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Guardian, CNN, Al Jazeera, Fox News, DW.com, and the Associated Press. The Philippines Department of National Defense announced Thursday that the U.S. will be given access to four additional military bases in strategic areas of the Southeast Asian country amid persisting tensions with China over Taiwan and the disputed South China Sea. The new deal was sealed under the 2014 U.S.-Philippines Enhanced Defense Cooperation Agreement, which has allowed Washington to rotate troops to a total of nine bases across the Philippines. The Philippines gained independence from the U.S. in 1946. The agreement, unveiled during a visit to Manila by U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, reportedly aims to enhance the decades-old security alliance between both countries and ramp up the modernization of combined military capabilities. During a joint press conference, Philippines President Ferdinand Marcos Jr. stated that his country depends on the U.S. and the Joint Security Partnership, to prevent regional tensions from escalating into possible military conflicts. While it has not been disclosed which new bases the U.S. will gain access to, Washington had reportedly requested entry to sites on the northern Philippine landmass of Luzon, close to Taiwan and the Palawan Islands, which are located in the disputed South China Sea. Austin's trip to Washington's oldest Asian treaty ally follows that of U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris in November, to improve relations that had declined under Marcos' predecessor, Rodrigo Duterte, and saw Manila deepen relations with China and Russia. All right, on this program, we separate the spin from the facts. Those were the facts, and let's start our narrative spins with an anti-China narrative from The Diplomat. The Philippines should boost its security ties with Washington as China's expansionism increasingly threatens its national sovereignty and territorial integrity. It's no coincidence that key regional players such as Japan have also opted to join the U.S. in stepping up deterrence against Beijing. Given China's increasingly aggressive stance, the question is no longer if, but when, military escalation will occur. And here's the pro-China narrative from the Global Times. The U.S. is exploiting the alleged Chinese threat to defend its hegemonic claims around the world. Manila must understand that Washington is not concerned with any of Manila's security interests, but that the U.S. seeks to use the Philippines as another tool in a potential conflict with China. 
The Philippines should therefore pursue a well-balanced foreign policy as a sovereign state and thus avoid becoming a de facto U.S. colony again. Shell reports its highest profits in 115 years. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, CNN, The Guardian, and The Independent. On Thursday, oil and gas giant Shell reported record annual profits of $39.9 billion for 2022, after energy prices surged following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The company's profits were double those from the previous year and its highest in 115 years. Shell reported a profit of $9.8 billion in Q4, with over 40% of the company's full-year earnings coming from its integrated gas operations, which include liquefied natural gas trading. The British company's record 2022 earnings mirror those reported by U.S. rivals earlier this week, including ExxonMobil's $59.1 billion report and Chevron's $36.5 billion recorded profit. Shell's latest figures have added pressure on the U.K. government to impose higher windfall taxes on the energy sector, which were introduced on North Sea operators last year. The Chancellor of the Exchequer, Jeremy Hunt, later announced in November 2022 that the windfall tax would rise from 25% to 35%. The move was expected to raise an additional £14 billion, or $17 billion, per year for the British government. Despite the introduction of last year's windfall tax, known as the Energy Profits Levy, Shell previously said it wouldn't pay any UK tax in 2023 due to offsets. The company changed its tune, however, saying it now expects to pay about $134 million in windfall taxes for 2022 and over $500 million for this year. Thank you, Scott, for the facts on that story. And we'll start our spins with a left narrative from the Fairness Foundation. Oil giants have gained excess profits due to the war in Ukraine and the rapid rise of energy prices. A more serious and fair windfall tax on energy companies' profits would redress the imbalance between companies' contributions to the state and their earnings and help struggling families pay their rapidly increasing utility bills. Individuals are obligated to contribute to society through taxes and other forms of support, and companies must do so too. And the right narrative comes from The Spectator. Windfall taxes weren't a good idea in the first place, and increasing them will have serious repercussions. While it may seem like an obvious solution to the UK's growing hole in public finances, in reality it's a short-term crutch that will lead to a new set of problems down the road. It discourages domestic investment and sends the dangerous message to the businesses that success must be accompanied by a heavy price. I feel like... When someone talks about a shell corporation, mm. that's like good PR for shell. Like they say, stay top of mind <laughs> by that. That's smart for them. Yeah, just like a subconscious, I'm hearing the word shell a lot. Yes, yes. Well, then I guess uh, maybe they're the inventors of that uh, tongue twister. Oh, so about Sally and her, uh, well, Sally. And her lucrative ventures. That's yeah. right. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, if she does well enough, we'll get a windfall tax on her. I think she's selling a lot of seashells. Turning our heads to day 344 of the Ukrainian conflict, EU leaders arrive for talks in Kyiv. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Ukraine Forum, France 24, Ukrainska Pravda, and All Arabia. 
A delegation of 15 EU officials, including Commission President Ursula von Ursula including Commission President Ursula von der Leyen and the bloc's top foreign policy chief, Joseph Borrell, arrived in Kyiv for two days of talks on Thursday. Discussions are set to focus on military aid, reconstruction efforts, and Ukraine's EU accession aspirations. So far, Borrell has announced that the EU plans to double the number of Ukrainian troops that will be trained by the bloc, taking the figure to 30,000, a 25 million euro or 27.5 million dollar demining initiative has also been announced. Meanwhile, Ukraine's defense minister Alexei Reznikov warned of the possibility that new Russian offensives may coincide with the one-year anniversary of the war later this month. He alleged that Russia had mobilized 500,000 troops, 200,000 more than had publicly been stated and that Ukrainian intelligence had observed these newly mobilized troops massing at the Russia-Ukraine border. Elsewhere, in a wide-ranging TV interview, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov alleged that the U.S. was directly involved in explosions that severely damaged the Nord Stream gas pipelines under the Baltic Sea last year. Lavrov did not provide evidence to substantiate the claims. He further alleged that the West was trying to turn Moldova, Georgia, and former Soviet states against Moscow, adding that Russia wanted to end the conflict, but that the nation was responding to the U.S. He further stated that if Ukraine were to receive long-range weapons, Russia would have to push them back from territories which are part of our country. On the ground, an overnight Russian attack on the Donetsk city of Kramatorsk killed three civilians and injured 22 more. Searches under the rubble are continuing. Kramatorsk was again shelled on Thursday, with reports of an unspecified number of additional civilian casualties at this stage. Two civilians were also reportedly killed, and two more were injured in Russian attacks on the Kherson region over the past day. Thanks for that rundown of this long-running conflict, Melissa. We have a pro-establishment narrative from the Atlantic. Ukrainians have fought not only for their own country, but also for all of Europe, reminding the alliance why it was founded in the first place. It's only right that the EU opens its doors to Ukraine. And the establishment critical narrative is provided by the unheard. If Ukraine were to join the EU, it would only further complicate the country's relations with Russia and draw the world even nearer to a global conflict. The West should resist being so blindly positive about Kyiv's potential bloc candidacy. And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives brought to us by the Metaculous Prediction Community. This one says, there is a 1% chance that Ukraine will join the European Union before 2024. The House of Representatives removes Omar from the Foreign Affairs Committee. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, Forbes, PBS NewsHour, Al Jazeera, and the Associated Press. The GOP-majority House of Representatives voted Thursday to remove Democratic Representative Elon Omar, Democrat of Minnesota, from the Foreign Affairs Committee. The vote occurred along party lines, 218 to 211, with David Joyce, Republican of Ohio, voting present. The resolution cites comments Omar made in the past that some have claimed to be anti-Semitic and anti-Israeli, such as a tweet claiming that Israel's relationship with the U.S. is, quote, all about the Benjamins. 
Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Republican of California, has already blocked Democratic Representatives Adam Schiff and Eric Swalwell, both Democrats from California, from rejoining the House Intelligence Committee after Republicans gained a House majority in the 2022 midterms. Omar responded to the move by stating, My leadership and voice will not be diminished if I am not on this committee for one term. My voice will get louder and stronger. House Democratic leader Hakeem Jeffries vowed to seat Omar on the House Budget Committee. McCarthy had promised retribution against the Democrats if they became the minority in the House due to the prior removal of Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, Republican of Georgia, from committees in 2021. Several Republicans have also called for a due process system to remove lawmakers from positions such as House committees, a matter that McCarthy has stated he would work with Democrats on but remains a work in progress. Thank you, Scott. We've, of course, got a political spin on this. We'll start with a Republican narrative from The Federalist. Omar's concerning comments downplaying 9-11, as well as comparing the U.S. to terrorist organizations, are solid justifications for her committee removal. Her comments about Israel, a trusted U.S. ally, are also concerning. Former House Speaker Pelosi set the precedent of removing officials from such positions, so McCarthy is well within his rights to make this move. Contrast that with this Democratic narrative from the Los Angeles Times. After unfairly blocking Schiff and Swalwell, once again McCarthy is unfairly targeting Democratic representatives. McCarthy lacks the moral compass to make a decision on which Democrats should take part in important committees. This reeks of political revenge and bigotry. Melissa, I got it. What? Get rid of private offices for these Congress people, and they have to share an office with a random other member of Congress. So they have to sit like Jim and Dwight, and it might be someone you're not aligned with just to get along with them. Would that that kind of shake up this political uh, logjam? I I like that. I think the image conjured in my head was elementary school where you change the, they change the desks around on you. You come in and one day there's like four desks kind of facing each other. Yeah. And And then then you're sitting next to the smelly kid. And there you go. You got to learn at a very young age that you have to deal with other people respectfully. And that would be a great lesson. And then just when that four people really forges a bond, they split them up again. They like, they, the teacher knows what to do. Yeah, we, that would be the ultimate turnabout is fair play. We're going to put elementary teachers in charge, the people that we're not funding in charge of seating our Congress people where they get to sit. I like that. I, I think this is a reality TV show. Let's yes. pitch it. Somebody call Mark Burnett. The Bank of England raises interest rates to a 14-year high. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, BBC News, The New York Times, The Independent, Sky News, and The Guardian. Though it says inflation is likely to have peaked, the Bank of England on Thursday raised interest rates from 3.5% to 4%, a 14-year high, stressing that this hike was needed due to higher-than-expected private sector wage growth. Seven of the nine Monetary Policy Committee members voted to increase the bank rate for the 10th consecutive time, with the bank's minutes, however, showing a softer tone after previously suggesting it would respond forcefully to inflation. This decision, which is set to increase mortgage costs for millions of UK homeowners, comes in a bid to control inflation after it reached a record 11.1% in October. 
The Bank of England also updated its economic forecast, presenting a more optimistic outlook compared to three months ago. The recession in the UK is now expected to be much softer than previously expected thanks to lower gas prices. These predictions are slightly more pessimistic than the recent International Monetary Fund forecast that suggested the UK would be the only major world economy to shrink in 2023, performing worse than Russia. The country is predicted not to reach pre-COVID inflation levels until 2026. Meanwhile, the European Central Bank on Thursday also lifted rates by another half a percentage point, raising its benchmark interest rates to the highest level since 2008. Inflation rates in the 20 nations that use the euro eased in January, but remains well beyond the bank's 2% benchmark. Thanks for that economic update, Melissa. We have a pro-establishment narrative from The Guardian. Though interest rates have been raised again and output in Britain is still expected to shrink this year, prospects for the British economy are much better in the immediate aftermath of Liz Truss's premiership. This measure may be seen as overprotective, but the UK's central bank deserves credit, as it has been exceeding expectations while dealing with multiple shocks. Previous fears of a Great Recession 2.0 should be replaced with hope. And here's the establishment critical narrative, and that's provided by The Telegraph. The Ukraine war, pandemic, supply chain chaos, and labor shortages have not helped Britain's economy over the past years, but it's inconceivable that the Bank of England still refuses to take responsibility for its own mistakes. The inflationary spiral affecting the UK was created much earlier than these shocks because interest rates were kept close to zero for too long. Central planners should be honest with the public when their mistakes lead to life-altering cost-of-living crises. And we've got another nerd narrative. This one says there's a 50% chance that the UK's annual inflation rate will be at least 6.63% by the year 2023, according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. Uh, It's going to get so bad in England that they're going to offer a golden passport and start selling off their country. Buying property in England, you have to. Do you have to be a citizen or something? Is there like lots of rules? There's things like you know, like not, property ownership is akin to being like a lord or whatever. Oh, like gosh, is, that's a has, great question. That, I'm not sure about yeah. England's rules. Yeah, I didn't know. Because in America, we just sell all our stuff to the Chinese. That's our plan. Well, they're the highest bidder, Scott. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's true. Right. It's not that they're Chinese. They're offering the most money. Yeah, that's true. And yeah, gold good. cougarans. That's right, right. Yeah, doubloons, cougarans, whatever you want. Yep. I I wish I had some cougarans. I just think that'd be fun. I'd just, you know, stack them in my in my closet here, but how much better would you feel about yourself or any everything if you just knew you had like a little stack of cougarans in your closet? Oh, pretty good for a little while, but then I think I'd cash them in <laughs> and buy oh, something yeah. stupid. So, yeah. it would have to be locked away from me and and and, and I'd have to okay. be able to I'd have to have like a a, a chain of people yeah. We sh- you shouldn't have any cougarans. I shouldn't. Italy and Libya renew their migration pact and spark criticism. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Human Rights Watch, and Reuters. The Memorandum of Understanding on Migration between Italy and Libya, originally signed in 2017, to give Libya financial and technical support to combat illegal immigration, was automatically renewed for a second time on Thursday, sparking criticisms from humanitarian organizations. In the lead-up to the renewal, Human Rights Watch, or HRW, 
on Wednesday accused Italy and the EU of being complicit in serious human rights violations, citing a June 2022 UN report that claims that migrants sent back to Libya faced inhumane acts such as murder, torture, and enslavement. The EU has handed over 57.2 million euros, that's $62.8 million, for integrated border and migration management in Libya since 2017, with its border agency Frontex providing surveillance information. Italy's Prime Minister Giorgia Maloney vowed last month to provide Libya's Coast Guard with five fully equipped boats. HRW says that Italy and other EU member states are responsible for the return of some 108,000 people to Libya since 2017, only 9,000 of which, it says, have been evacuated by the UN High Commissioner for Refugees. Meanwhile, Italy and the EU have maintained that the actions are required to prevent illegal immigration. This comes as the pan-European human rights watchdog Council of Europe has asked Italy to scrap a new decree that orders charity-run ships to request a port and sail to it without delay after a rescue, rather than remain at sea looking for other migrant boats in distress. Italy is facing a surge in migrant arrivals from North Africa, receiving over 105,000 people by sea last year, up from some 67,000 in 2021 and 34,000 in 2020, according to official data. The U.N. estimates that almost 1,400 migrants died while trying to cross the central Mediterranean in 2022. All right. Thank you, Scott, for that somber story. We've got a left narrative spin here from Amnesty International. Thanks to the anti-immigrant beliefs of Italian leadership, tens of thousands of asylum seekers have been intercepted at sea and forced back to Libya, where they face unimaginable atrocities. If Italy wants to work with Libya, it should amend the agreement to include releasing migrants from detention centers and ensuring they can safely arrive in Europe. And the right narrative comes from the Atlantic Sentinel. Though some in the EU leadership don't acknowledge it, there are dozens of individual countries within the bloc, each of which has its own right to border protection. If Italy wants to enact stricter illegal immigration laws, it should be allowed to allocate more resources toward that goal. And if other countries wish to open their doors, they should be given the resources to do so. Europe is facing an unprecedented immigration crisis, as as not all are refugees, and it calls for real solutions, not empty virtue signaling. And here's a cynical narrative from Standard Media. While all eyes are now on Italy, the West, with its neo-colonial policies and imperial logic, is itself responsible for the ongoing migration and refugee crisis and the rise of populist and right-wing governments in Europe, such as that of Giorgia Maloney in Italy. It must not be ignored that ultimately it was NATO's humanitarian intervention that destroyed Libya and opened Pandora's box. In a recent report, a record $3.8 billion in cryptocurrency was stolen in 2022. A recent report says that a record $3.8 billion in cryptocurrency was stolen in 2022. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, CNN, Benzinga, and The Inquirer. Cryptocurrency theft was at its worst in 2022, with hackers stealing upwards of $3.8 billion, according to a report released Wednesday by Chainalysis, a crypto blockchain analytics firm. 
The stolen amount increased by a half billion dollars from 2021's total and came as the overall crypto market declined significantly, with Bitcoin falling 60% last year. North Korean hackers allegedly stole a record $1.7 billion in crypto, up from $429 million in 2021. DeFi, or decentralized finance, platforms were reportedly the primary target of hackers, who used cross-chain bridges and blockchain infrastructure as their main methods of theft, accounting for more than 82%, or $3.1 billion, of the crypto stolen. The report also said that hacking ebbed and flowed, though October was the worst month for crypto theft, recording $775.7 million stolen in 32 separate attacks. The combination of the volatile market and rising rates of hacks left investors with large losses and regulators calling for more consumer protection. DeFi platforms, which were created in an attempt to replace traditional banks by allowing users to exchange assets directly via blockchains, are prime targets because they typically hold large reserves of types of crypto coins. As North Korea faces sanctions and monitoring from the likes of the U.S. and U.N., it's believed to be using crypto hackers to obtain money for its missile and nuclear weapons program. But beyond state-sponsored hacks, Chainalysis also said 2022 saw a record amount of crypto transactions used for many types of illicit activities, reaching a total of $20.1 billion. The pro-establishment narrative comes from EconomyMiddleEast.com. Although DeFi platforms are popular because of their transparent nature, they're also vulnerable to major hacks. North Korean hackers have abused these vulnerabilities and have popularized the switch from attacking mainstream crypto platforms to focusing on unguarded, decentralized ones. DeFi platforms need to strengthen their security through measures including third-party audits. And The Street brings us an establishment-critical narrative. Government spying on average citizens is coming disguised as cybersecurity against threats from U.S. adversaries, including North Korea and Russia. Canada was able to do this when it regulated cryptocurrency during last year's trucker protests, setting an example for other countries. Financial autonomy is tough in a surveillance state. Isn't the joke on these hackers because every time they steal this cryptocurrency, it reduces people's confidence in it as a currency and the value goes down, right? So they're just by stealing it, they're reducing their value of their own thing. Yeah, but, you know, but thieves aren't really long-term thinking, are they? Mm. So by the time the value goes down, they've spent it. Dang, I gotta start stealing stuff. Yeah, like gold cougarans. The College Board Revises African-American Studies Course. Here are the facts as agreed upon by PBS NewsHour, Daily Caller, The New York Times, Al Jazeera, and CNN. The College Board which is responsible for developing high school advanced placement or AP courses, announced revisions to the AP class in African-American studies on Wednesday, which Florida Governor Ron DeSantis had threatened to ban in his state. The DeSantis administration had objected to the parts of the course that dealt with so-called queer theory and allegedly taught tenets of so-called critical race theory, which, per the Associated Press, centers on the idea that racism is systemic in the nation's institutions and that those institutions maintain the dominance of white people. 
Many of the names of black writers and scholars were removed from the curriculum, which also no longer studies Black Lives Matter and other political topics. David Coleman, the college board's CEO, issued a written statement calling the curriculum an unflinching encounter with the facts and evidence of African-American history and culture. A version of the course is available at 60 high schools across the U.S. as part of a pilot program. It will be open to students at hundreds more schools over the next year. The debate over the course comes amid a larger debate in the U.S. over what should be included in public education and who should have the most influence over curriculums. Thank you, Scott. We have a right narrative from PJ Media. Claims that DeSantis is trying to erase black history are ludicrous, as these revisions were in the works before Florida issued its complaints. Nonetheless, this is a win for DeSantis's fight against woke culture and a victory for students who can now study black history without an ideological bent, distorting the facts or sowing division by defining people as oppressors and oppressed based simply on race. And the left narrative comes from Mother Jones. It's hard to accept the College Board's claim that its watering down of the curriculum isn't a reaction to complaints from DeSantis, whose term as governor has been largely devoted to erasing black and LGBTQ plus experiences from education. The College Board caved, and sadly, students will now be robbed of the educational opportunity to understand how black history impacts the present world Americans live in. Did you have AP classes in your high school? We did. We did too. I, I, we had biology. We had, no, we had, we had chemistry, European history, and calculus. Those were the only three choices. What did you guys have? We also had biology, and we also had English. Mm. Oh, well, we probably had AP English too. Yeah, yeah. We we definitely had English. Yeah, AP chemistry. Whoo! I I think I, I, take I, it. I don't. Th- I think I still could not pass AP chemistry. Mm-hmm. I I remember. Uh, the teacher, when I, you know, we filled out the classes we were supposed to take senior year and I didn't choose AP chemistry. I chose some other, you know, some other science class or something. And the science teacher was like, Hey, you didn't do AP chemistry. And I'm like, yeah. He's like, well, did you forget to fill it out? I'm like, no. It's like, oh, okay. I think that was like the first time I like exercised my own autonomy of like something I could do or not do based on my own thought, like not just right. doing what I was supposed to do. Right, right. And I never did what I was supposed to do ever again. So, <laughs> but that was a, a great choice, right? Yes. I, I well, yeah. I, <laughs> here we are. <laughs> here, we, here we are. Well, so if you had taken AP chemistry, you would be working in everything, the everything would be different. Oh. Yes. In a new study, the Merck COVID drug may cause virus mutations. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Bloomberg, Science, Seeking Alpha, and Barron's. In a preprint study from the Francis Crick Institute, Imperial College London, and other UK institutes, researchers found that Merck and company's COVID medication, Legevrio, also known as Molnupiravir, causes new mutations of the virus in patients. Molnupiravir, administered as a pill, was developed to eliminate the virus in infected persons by creating mutations in the viral genome. The data shows that the drug generates novel viruses that are transmissible, causing researchers to be concerned that the mutations could extend and reinvigorate the pandemic. Merck and company denies that Legevrio causes mutations in the virus. 
Pfizer, who has endured similar claims for its drug Paxlovid, has dismissed these concerns. Both companies blame uncontrollable community transmissions instead. Merck representatives said that based on the data the company has collected from research on animals, Legevrio does not cause mutations. In 2021, Merck and Company's antiviral was the first drug to be authorized for the treatment of COVID. Initially authorized in the U.S. and the U.K., it is now authorized for use in many countries, netting the pharmaceutical company more than $5 billion in 2022. While the pharma giant reported $13.8 billion in sales for the fourth quarter, Merck said it expects a $4.7 billion decrease in sales for its COVID medicine in 2023. All right, so... Great. Well, we have a pro-establishment narrative on this story from Bloomberg. While this research finding may seem worrying, it has not gone through the rigorous peer review process. While during the pandemic, many scientists started publishing their research on preprint servers prior to review in an attempt to more quickly share findings. This practice is dangerous. It means that there is less oversight on research and unverified scientific findings may confuse the public. More validation is needed. The process of scientific research and confirmation must run their due course. And here's an establishment critical narrative from University Affairs. While peer review is important, the world of publishing moves dangerously slowly, with some studies taking months or even years to move through the peer review and publication process. Preprints accelerate scientific communication, and sharing scientific knowledge in a timely manner far outweighs the risks of sharing unreviewed work. This is just the beginning of findings about the risks of Merck's product, and the public deserves to be aware of the early findings. So my tinfoil hat is off. I took it off a couple years ago, Mm. but I still do wrap my peanut butter sandwich in tinfoil, so I could take it it out and put it back on. Do I need to do that? Oh, you're probably going to get cancer from eating peanut butter wrapped in foil. So, oh really? Is that a is that a problem? Yeah, probably. <laughs> is that a tinfoil hat theory or is that a real theory, ironically? Uh, I don't have peer reviewed evidence on that. But, That's, um, you know. uh, who needs peer reviewed evidence? Publish it. Well, print you know, it. You, you're not supposed to put aluminum in your armpits anymore, so you probably shouldn't eat it. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. Deodorant is like the worst, like antiperspirants like poison, right? Yeah. Yeah. Aluminum, Gosh, not not God. good for the body. You shouldn't put weird foreign metals into your body. Okay. Well, there you go. You will smell delicious. Yeah. Natural deodorant doesn't work really for me anyway. I sweat too much. It doesn't work at all. If you get one that's really perfumey, then you can mask it for a little while. Yeah. But then you're just smelling someone's perfumey armpit, right? It could be. I guess it depends on the the potency of your stench. Hmm. No comment. Our final story, King Charles won't appear on the Australian $5 bill. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, NPR Online News, Reuters, The Telegraph, News 24, and The Guardian. According to an announcement from Australia's central bank on Thursday, King Charles III will not appear on the country's new $5 note. An indigenous design will be featured instead of the British monarch, who remains Australia's head of state. A statement from the bank declared that the change would honor the culture and history of the first Australians, but clarified that the other side of the $5 banknote will continue to feature the Australian Parliament. The decision, made following consultation with the Australian federal government, 
which reportedly supports the new design, comes amid a revival of the debate concerning Australia's status as a constitutional monarchy following Queen Elizabeth II's death. Peter Dutton, leader of the political opposition in Australia, critiqued the government's announcement as another attack on our systems, on our society, and our institutions. However, Australia's Republican movement, which supports cutting ties with the British monarchy altogether, celebrated the news, highlighting that indigenous peoples predated colonial settlement by around 65,000 years. Per a recent poll, 43% of Australian residents desired the $5 bill to feature an Australian. 34% preferred King Charles to remain. Thank you, Scott. For the facts on our last story, we'll start the spins with a pro-establishment narrative from The Spectator. The new king belongs on the $5 banknote. The Labour government does not have the mandate to implement a republic by stealth. And until the Australian people make the democratic decision otherwise, Australia is still a constitutional monarchy. Charles III possesses the same level of affection for the nation as his late mother. Australia should honor that. And we wrap our show with an establishment critical narrative from CNN. King Charles III will still be featured on Australian currency, just not banknotes. It is high time that first Australians, who make up 3.2% of the population, were consulted and recognized through the currency of Australia, rather than the lineage of colonizers. I'm still, I'm in season three of The Crown. It's just, oh God, I just love it. Oh, it do, you, do you like it? I love, I, it. I love it. It's fantastic. I love it. It's so, I think it might be my favorite show. It's so good. It's so compelling. The, the music is the beautiful. The thing I like about it is that I like short movies. I hate a lot, unless a movie's amazing. I like Wedding Crashers is like two and a half hours long. That like, come is, on, dude. Yeah, for comedy it's too. It's insane. Yeah. Um, but I like the crown is like watching a really good, like 58 minute movie every single time. It feels like, which is like perfect. Yeah. So compelling. Thanks for listening to the improve the news podcast for Friday, February 3rd, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Melissa Topshire, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News. Improve the News.